So we're continuing with the book of Acts, a series that we started at the beginning of summer about getting back to God's normal. I want to take a little bit of a turn before we get into it today, though, and I want you to start thinking about something because it really it has got a lot to do with uh, this text today. Ever thought about your legacy? Not just talking about what you do with your money. I'm talking about your legacy. I'm not asking if, you, if you've thought about being famous. I'm asking about, have you ever thought about how it is that people are going to remember you after you're gone? Have you ever thought about what difference or impact you're going to make in the world in small ways and in large ways in the life that you have and, and what will it be that you leave behind? As we talk about this passage today, I want you to think about legacy. I want you to think about these men that went out and traveled the world and put everything they had on the line because they believed in something so greatly that they were willing to risk everything, including their lives, to get the word of it out. Is there anything in your world that you're that passionate about? If there is, that's probably your legacy. If there's something that you're that passionate about, it's probably the thing that you're going to leave behind and people are going to remember you for. But I want to think about legacy as we go through this. I told you a few weeks ago, and this is admittedly a bold statement, that we're a church that I absolutely believe that God has called and placed us here to be a part of leading cultural change. Not just to to make a small difference or give people a place to gather on Sunday mornings. When I look at the scope of what it is that God has entrusted to us, there's a responsibility there. Biblically, it makes it very clear. This series about getting back to God's normal, I believe that we as a church are being called to lead the people in this area back to God's normal. It's not going to be easy. It's not always going to be fun. Goodness knows it's not going to be popular. To be a part of changing a culture that is well set and that most people are very happy in. To be a part of changing that is not going to be an easy thing. But I believe, like what we're looking at in our text today, we're called to be a part of turning the world literally upside down. That's our call as a congregation. But I also believe that that call starts on a much smaller scale than that. That call starts with you and I. You and I as individuals... God has clearly called us to be leaders at home, with our families. God's called us to be leaders in school, at work, in the things that we do for fun. God has called us as Christians to be leaders. God has called us to make a difference. been a lot of leaders in the world. Some of them have been very, very good and very helpful. Some of them have been incredibly powerful but destructive. They have led with no intention other than evil. But there's a couple of things about leaders, good or bad, that are pretty consistent. One of them is they have and are able to cast a vision that people can understand and get excited about. The vision that they cast goes well beyond who they are. Their personality might drive it. But they cast a vision that people can believe in. And the next thing they do is They pave a road that shows how it is that we get to this new way of living. I wholeheartedly believe that the most famous leader in the history of the world who turned the world upside down with his life and death and resurrection was a humble man named Jesus of Nazareth. Thirty-three years that he was on this world, and no matter what you believe about him, people know who he is. His life wasn't long. He didn't grow up in a big city. 
But every single person in the world today that hears about Jesus has to make a decision about Jesus. Your decision might be that I don't want to think, I don't want to, I don't want to even deal with them, but that's a decision. Your decision might be that I'm willing to learn a little bit more about Him. He sounded like an interesting guy. Your decision might be to believe that He is who He claimed to be and you put your faith and hope and trust in Him and you now call yourself a Christian. But even if you say, I don't, I don't believe that He was anything that you people say He was. I don't believe that He's who the Bible says He was. You're at least making a decision. And in denying Him, that's a decision that will last an eternity. See, the movement that he began was to transform and redeem the lives and the eternities of, humans, eternities of human souls from our sin. That movement, that legacy, if you will, continues on today. We're still talking about him. We gather here every Sunday morning to learn more about him. What we read in this passage from Acts is the early church and a few men and a few women who literally turned the world upside down and the response that they got and the way that people received them, the similarities to me are incredible to our world today. A lot of them are things that we as a congregation in small ways have even experienced. So today we're going to read a little bit more about how the good news of Jesus turned the world upside down and began changing lives 2,000 years ago. And as we continue in this passage, there's still good lessons for us. And as, as you listen... I want you to think of what it must have been like for them in their day when it was actually happening. And what are the correlations? What are the connections? What are the similarities that you can see in your experience to the church and how the church interacts with the world around it today? Acts chapter 17, verse 1. You'll probably notice that I'm not having the verses put up on the screen for this. I just want you to listen to the verses and think about what's going on rather than to focus on the words. That's my reason behind that. Verse 1, Now when they had passed... Through Amphilopolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica, where there was a synagogue of the Jews. Synagogue of the Jews was quite simply their church building. It was where they met. They gathered all week long. They, they gathered on the Sabbath. It was, Sabbath, it was where they gathered for worship, for discussion, for teaching, for community. It's where the Jewish people got together to be who they were. It was their home, if you will. Verse 2, And Paul went in, as was his custom, and on three Sabbath days he reasoned with them from the Scriptures. Now Paul was a Christian. He'd been converted, converted his faith and hope and trust lied in Jesus Christ. But he was a Jewish person. He understood what the synagogue was about. He understood what they were learning. He understood who the people were. For many, many years, the synagogue was his religious home. It was not unusual for Paul to walk into a synagogue, although maybe now as a Christian it was something he didn't do as often as he used to. But he knew who was there. And he knew that they would understand who it is that he was talking about. So it says that he went in and he went for three Sabbath days. That's three weeks. That's three Saturdays in a row. Three weeks in a row, Paul went and did the same thing. What he did, it says, was he reasoned with them. He went to the Jewish people first with the Gospel. And then we find out he went to the non-Jewish people. He chose to meet them in their place of worship where they were comfortable, where they already were. He chose not to ask them to come to Him. He went to them at their normal gathering time, at the time that they were used to being together and talking about things of faith. It's also important, that word that they add there, He didn't do anything but reason with them. He didn't argue. He didn't insist that He was right. He didn't make sure that they understood why 
his idea of faith was better than their idea. He simply reasoned with them. He honored them in their space and their place. He made his point through conversation, not through insistence. I could imagine Paul saying, well, as you read this passage from Isaiah, doesn't it make sense that? As you read this verse from your own scrolls, can you yourself see that? Wouldn't it make sense that? He's reasoning with them. He's taking intelligent people. He's giving them credit for everything that they know. And he's having a conversation. And it says in verse 3 that he is explaining and proving that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead and saying, this Jesus whom I proclaim to you is the Christ. Paul explains to these folks, some of whom were no doubt experts in the Scriptures, that the man that they were waiting for, the Messiah, the Son of God, the long-awaited Savior, in fact had been born and lived and had been put to death. He reasoned with them. He explained to them. And it even says at the end that He proved to them. Because the fact is, if you look at the Bible and if you take the Bible for what it says... There's really nothing that we can draw as a conclusion other than Jesus really is the Son of God. The Bible is consistent, human experience is consistent, and history is consistent. It says in verse 4, some of them were persuaded, and they joined Paul and Silas, as did a great many of the devout Greeks, and not a few of the leading women. It's interesting there that it starts out with the Jewish people, it goes to the non-Jewish people, and then it even includes women. What that tells me is that Paul didn't go into just the leaders at the synagogue. Paul went into the outer areas where everybody was welcome. He, He gathered maybe on the outside of the synagogue where people who were interested in what he had to say could gather. We know that because it says that Greeks and women chose to believe what he said. They're willing to walk away from their religious culture the only thing that they'd ever known and embraced the truth of Jesus as their Savior. Some of you can understand that because you found your way to the open door after having spent your whole life in another church. You spent your whole life in in one gathering of people. Maybe it was 20 years or 40 years or 70 years. And for you, you understand the idea of turning a culture upside down. You understand the idea of doing something incredibly different and leaving home and going to a new place. And that's what these people did. They left their church in order to worship in a new way. They left the culture, the traditions that they grew up in, and they took on new cultures and new traditions. And the only way that Paul could get them there wasn't to demand or insist or or to force. He reasoned with them. He loved them. He spoke the truth. He let them come to that understanding on their own. So remember I said I want you to, as we listen to this, draw a parallel to your life today and see what you've experienced. See if you felt any of this. Verse 5, But the Jews were jealous. And taking some wicked men of the rabble, they formed a mob, they set the city in an uproar, and they attacked the house of Jason, seeking to bring them out to the crowd. It was the church people who got upset. You would think the church people would say, that's great that you're knowing God in a more intimate way. That's great that you're understanding who He is. That's awesome that you see Jesus for who He is. That's what we should be excited in the church, shouldn't we? But it doesn't always happen that way. It was the Jewish people who were jealous. And I think that word is not there by accident. The church people didn't celebrate Jesus. They didn't celebrate the good news that Paul preached. They got jealous and then they went out and they did something further. They found wicked men in the city to stir up revolt. 
They caused the city to go into an uproar. See, where there's a mob mentality, when a bunch of people get together, doesn't really matter what the truth is anymore. What matters is who speaks the loudest and who makes the most noise. And you know what? We're going to believe that. We're going to fall into that teaching. And these Jewish leaders knew that they couldn't hold a candle to the truth of Jesus. And so instead what they did is they hired evil men and they sent them out in the city to start spreading rumors and gossip and lies and chaos. And the intent was to discredit Paul and his message of Jesus. They created this chaos knowing that people love to jump to gossip and lies more than we love to celebrate the truth. If you've been one of those brave souls who's left another church and have moved and called this your church home, you may have felt some of that. You may have felt some people who maybe they were jealous, maybe they acted like they were angry. Who knows? But the fact is, this isn't something that just happens in the Bible. This is something that still happens today. And the thing that we need to look at today as a church is the same thing as what Paul is doing. Paul went in and reasoned and he preached the truth. That's all he did. He didn't tell anybody to leave. He didn't ask them to leave. He said, This Jesus that we have seen and known, He is the one that your Scriptures talk about. He brought good news and the church leaders fought back with fear and doubt. And at the end, that's all the enemy has. When we talk about changing the culture, the real culture that we're trying to change is a culture of fear and doubt. A culture of scarcity. A a culture of ignorance. And when we talk about preaching Jesus and making Him known, that's what it is that we're really facing out there is people who are simply afraid of doing things differently. It says that they attacked and went after Jason's house. Why would they do that? Well, Jason's house is probably where the apostles were staying. And my guess is what those evil men did, those Jewish leaders, they said, if you go in and grab the disciples and you pull them out and you bring them into this uproar, there's a very good chance that people are going to get so angry that they're going to kill them. And the church leader said, we had nothing to do with it. It was just the crowd. And just like Jesus, they put an end to the noise. But it didn't work that way. That's not at all what ended up happening. See, these evil men used evil means to maintain what amounted to being a religion of death. What Paul preached was life in Jesus. Unfortunately, if you watch late night television, you you maybe run into a preacher once in a while that preaches a religion of death. They preach all about you and how great you are. We have talk show hosts and authors. We have people in our world all over the place that want you to believe that you alone are more than enough. That you can do it if you'll just try harder. If you'll just be a better person. If you'll just give to the right cause. If you'll just give to that preacher. Everything will be okay. And at the end of the day, what that really is is nothing more than a newfangled religion of death. It's a feel-good gospel that isn't found in the Bible. It's grace that doesn't require a cross for forgiveness. It's wrapped up in the lie that's become so popular today that heaven heaven is a place for everybody. It doesn't matter what you believe. It doesn't matter whether you know who God is. And all of those gospels that preach happiness and eternity outside of a relationship of Jesus are preaching a gospel of death just as much as they were in Jesus' day. Verse 6, when they couldn't find them, says they dragged Jason and some of his brothers before the city authorities, said these men who have turned the world upside down have come here also. They knew their reputation. They knew what they were doing. They knew the trouble they were causing. And Jason has received them and they're all acting against the decrees of Caesar saying that there is another king, Jesus. They can't combat them 
on the truth of Jesus. So they spin up a lie. Jesus wasn't going against Caesar. In fact, he said, you give Caesar what Caesar is due. Jesus never once said anything about, about not following earthly leaders. And in fact, it was clear that the Bible makes it clear that our earthly leaders are there in place by God. Is Jesus a king? Yes, of a very different kingdom. But as is true in our world today, when you can't combat the truth of the gospel, what you do is you go after the people who believe in the truth of the gospel. Did you happen to read in the newspaper that that uh, Christian bakery owner in Colorado, Supreme Court ruled in his favor and he is getting hammered by lawsuit after lawsuit after lawsuit because people are calling and ordering cakes that they know he won't bake. They're attacking the man because they can't attack Jesus. And that's what happened here. And so what did they do? The people in the city authorities were disturbed and when they heard these things, wasn't disturbed by the truth. Now nah, the truth was simple. It was by the falsified telling of what really happened. And then it gets to the interesting part. It says, when they'd taken money as security from Jason and the rest, they let them go. <laughs> what were they really interested in? Money. They had no charge. There was nothing that they could do that, that said they'd done anything wrong. They couldn't hold them for anything. So they said, we're going to take money from you, and then we've got to let you go. There's nothing else we can do. It's all about making sure that the income stream keeps flowing to keep this big synagogue and all of the things that it's churning every day going, even though the one thing that was missing was the truth, and the truth was Jesus. So what happened? You know what? Jason and Paul, Silas, those new Christians, they didn't get scared. They didn't go away. In fact, they, they were boldened more than ever by the Holy Spirit, and they continued to turn the world upside down with the good news of Jesus. They literally created a new Jesus culture around the world in the midst of this tradition-bound world that they understood in the synagogue. In fact, the, the new culture was so unlike the world that it took on a new name. Do you know what they called it 2,000 years ago? The Way. They called it the Way because it was the way to heaven. It was the way to Jesus. It was the way to a relationship with Jesus. But it was different than anything else in the world because the world lives at odds with God's created normal. Last week we talked about the shackles being broken and the jailer who was about to take his life and that man giving his life to Jesus. Today what we're talking about is turning the world upside down and the shackles of the world falling off. It started with, with a group of prisoners and now it goes to the whole community but not everybody's willing to listen. The folks who want to hold on to their traditions choose to remain shackled. So for us as a church to make the bold statement that we want to lead a cultural revolution, we need to be about something far greater than ourselves. We need to be about something far greater than any one of us or even, even what this place is. We need to make sure that what we do is we tell the world about the great events and all the greatest events in all of human history. Jesus Christ, His life, His death, and His resurrection. You know, it's fun to tell people how much we love our church. It's I love hearing people who are changed by this place. That just that gives us an encouragement to keep on going. But you know what? This place isn't going to save you. I certainly am not going to save you. The open door won't transform your life, but Jesus will. Jesus is the one we need to get excited about. What we can do is we can invite people to come to the open door to hear about Jesus. And the promise that we've made from day one is you're not going to hear about other books. You're not going to hear about our ideas about things. You're going to hear from the book. 
you're going to hear from the way. You're going to hear the truth of the Jesus, truth of Jesus from the book that God gave us to talk about him. I hope you love your church. But understand that your church isn't going to forgive your sins. Jesus alone will do that. Our job here is to make sure that we preach Jesus, that we keep Him at the forefront of everything that we do. This passage for me hits home pretty personally. I've lived eight years of my life through the open door. I realize that our church and I as its pastor are not always normal in the eyes of the world. In fact, I hear about it all the time. But what I tell folks is, you know, all we're trying to do is be normal in the eyes of God. That's all we can do. We're trying to please one. It's why I talk about with worship, you're worshiping for an audience of one. For centuries, people gather together and they try to build churches to impress the people around them. They build these huge structures that make a statement of their importance and their influence because these these big buildings, surely they demand respect. And so we see these great cathedral-like monuments to human greatness. And the one thing that is forgotten is that they forget to include the very God the building is there for. Years ago, they, they built cathedrals, and it still happens today, but we don't call them cathedrals. They're built as a statement of the power of the institution of the church. They were built to awe and to impress and to intimidate. They spent a fortune on these stone structures that more like, like, looked more like castles than the earthly dwelling place from a carpenter from Nazareth who, for the record, was counterculturally born to a single mom. The great cathedrals, they, they were constructed to make a statement on earth of how great the people inside were. And what they ended up doing was a great job of keeping people out rather than welcoming people in. I want to show you a picture of an impressive building. This is St. Paul's Cathedral in London. This is actually the most narrow and small view of it that you can get. As you walk around it, it just gets bigger and more elaborate. It's huge. It's impressive. It had to have taken millions upon millions upon millions of dollars. But having been there twice now, the one thing that I have yet to feel when I walk up is any sense of welcoming. It's cold. It's impersonal. It's impressive, but that's it. So now as the pastor of a church called the open door, something else strikes me. These are the doors to the front of St. Paul's Cathedral. That's Daedri standing in front of them. Are those doors constructed to welcome people in or to keep people out? Now I'm sure there's a very good reason why they made them the way they made them, but if you look real closely, there's not even a handle on the outside of that thing. You get in when you're let in. And that makes a profound statement to me as the pastor of our church. What's the message that we're giving? makes me wonder about our church and how it is that people in our area experience us. We're called the open door, but are we really? Are we really the culture-leading, world-upside-down, turning, welcoming church that I hope that we are? See, the one thing that scares me is that Churches who understand themselves as welcoming very quickly become unwelcoming. And before you know it, they build a building like that and they forget to put a handle on the outside to let anybody in. Are we the open door in our name only or are we, you and I, the ones who invite and welcome and greet people who come to see us? Are we so excited about the work that God is doing here and about our relationship with Jesus that we can't help 
but tell people about it? One of the best things I ever heard was someone who said, you know, you got to try coming to my church. You'll meet Jesus in blue jeans. And it wasn't me they were referring to. It was that Jesus is just right there in the midst of life with all of us. And it's easy to take a church like that and doors like that and create an image of God like that that we can never relate to. What I never want to become is one of those churches that gets so focused on us that we end up preaching a godless gospel of our own greatness. If we're going to turn the world upside down, the only way that we can do that is to be leaders of cultural change and invite people not to follow us, but invite people to meet and to follow Jesus for themselves. To explain who He is and how they can know Him. To do what Paul did and sit down and reason with people where they are, where they live, where they meet. Don't argue with them. Share with them. Reason with them. Tell them who Jesus is to you because that's what they really want to know. Do we really want to be impressed or have people impressed with land and buildings or do we want them to be impressed with the God who lives within? Our responsibility in this place, folks, is to do what Deidre couldn't do at St. Paul's and that is to open the doors. What strikes me about those doors is and and. It's been a part of my understanding of this place from the very beginning. If you're going to open one of those doors from the outside, which they don't give you the ability to do, they are so big that the only thing you can do is swing them open, and by the time that door is open, whoever does it is hiding behind it. And the only thing they can see is the Jesus inside. That's the kind of church that we want to be. Not the kind of church that people are impressed with us. I've never been impressed with a need for pretty buildings. But I want people to be able to meet Jesus and to encounter the real presence of the Holy Spirit in worship. When we get focused on all that other stuff, then we become guilty of preaching that godless gospel of human ability. Look at what we did. No. How about look at what God is doing? Let's preach a God-focused gospel of Jesus Christ and Him crucified. And when we do that, when we really believe it and when we faithfully and consistently do that day in and day out, week in and week out, when we do it with our families, when we do it at work, when we do it with our friends, we're going to begin to change the culture one person at a time. And God will use us and God will use this place to turn the world upside down with the good news of Jesus. So what you need to know is I'm not interested in in pastoring a church that exists to give me a place to pastor. That would be a monumental failure on my part. But I am absolutely sold out for a church that I get to pastor that has the desire to change the world around us. And so that's who we will be. We will preach Jesus. And we will look for the best staff and the best pastors and the best leaders for this place that we can. And the whole goal will be for you to know Him so personally that it is your desire to go out and to reason with your friends and the people that you work with in the hope of introducing them to Jesus themselves. Let's pray. God, we thank You for who You are. We thank You for Jesus and for what He has done for us. And God, also, we thank You for this space, this building, this beautiful piece of land that You have allowed us to occupy. But God, it isn't about the building and it isn't about the land. What those tell me more than anything is that we have a responsibility to You and and to the Gospel of Jesus and to the culture in this area that needs to hear about You. 
God, help us to be people who truly seek You. Who seek Jesus not not to endorse the way that we're living, but to change who we are from the inside out. To have a relationship with Jesus that transforms us so that we are no longer who we were, but that we are becoming who You created us to be. God, help us to be people who want to go out and share the good news of what Jesus is doing with us and what You are doing in this place. That want to invite other people, not because we're amazing, but because You're amazing. And then God, for all of us who are here, whoever those folks might meet, let us be welcoming, let us be kind, let us love them, and let us very quickly point the way to You. God, because if we can get all that straight, then then our legacy just might be that we made a difference in this world for You, that we were a part of changing the culture in this area, that maybe, maybe we could turn the world upside down in the name of Jesus. It's in His name that we pray. Amen. I want to talk about legacy before you walk out. Maybe your legacy is you want to make a difference and you want to give something a whole bunch of your money. You know what it takes you to do for the first thing? The first thing you've got to do is you've got to give your first dollar. You can want it for all you want, but until you give away that first dollar, there's no legacy that's going to happen. You can maybe want to make a big difference for the kingdom of God, but until you talk to that first person, it's not going to happen. I can imagine, imagine no greater legacy at the end of my life than to have somebody I meet in heaven say, you were the one that introduced me to Jesus. Can you imagine there being any greater purpose to your life on earth than having someone there say, she introduced me, he introduced me, they were the one that introduced me to Jesus. You want to talk legacy, folks. That's where it begins. And we begin to change the world one person at a time.